Hey, Acapella fans, you are now listening to The Pensions, the University of Pennsylvania's premier all-male award-winning acapella group here on Acapella Radio streaming 24 hours a day. Thank you for listening to Acapella, and we hope you enjoy this next song. Welcome to Polyphony. We are in episode nine, and this week we are talking about mental health and acapella, or sanity and singing. We have with us today Barry Carl, who is longtime acapella member and marriage counselor, and Brianne Woodward, who is an educator and also private voice teacher. Welcome to Brianne and Barry. And now here is Aaron. Thanks so much, Rachel. I'd love to start our discussion today by talking about kind of what you feel like are the common drivers of concern right now that you're seeing in terms of adding mental health stress in folks' lives, both specifically within the arts, but perhaps more broadly. And, you know, some of these things I imagine may have predated COVID. And then I think probably COVID has probably accentuated a bunch of that as well. Brianne, why don't we start with you? What are you feeling like is behind what's going on right now? Just like you were saying, all of these things were precipitory events. And then a lot of things came to a head and were magnified by the pandemic experience, which is what we've been referring to it as, because we're not sure what act we're in. We've tried a few intermissions, but it's ongoing. And from my standpoint, both in the classroom and in private studio work, this is primarily with adolescents in middle school, uh, ages 11 and 12 through 18. In most cases, I work with some high school students as well. And we're just seeing a tremendous amount of anxiety that has come through and is even anxiety that was managed well before has now become pervasive in every aspect of education. Interesting. Barry, how about for you? Is that echoing some of the things that you're seeing? What else are you observing? Well, absolutely. And Brianna, that's the segment of the population that I've been the most concerned about. And it breaks my heart to hear that. There's a word that's popped up in, in early 2020. It's an old word, acedia. It originated in the 11th century, and it referred to cloistered monks who, after being shut up for a certain length of time, became at the same time despondent and irritable. And originally there were eight deadly sins not seven. And the eighth deadly sin was acedia. And Pope Gregory, I don't know what he economized, but he combined acedia and laziness, which was a sin. And it clutched it into sloth. Though they're really but, quite different experiences, I would expect. They are. But I think what, what I've seen a lot of, if I can label it, in the last couple of years is acedia across the board. I mean, it's not only an incredible stressor in its own right, but I think Brienne said it probably better. It exacerbates whatever is pre-existing. To speak to that point, I love that you said that, Barry, because when I found that definition at some point in the 2020 year, I was so grateful to find a word for it. And I ended up taking it to my classes the next day. And I said, I have a vocabulary word that we all need right now. And I said, and while we don't know how to resolve it, I think that just having a name for it is going to help us be okay with where we're at. And I was so grateful to have a word because I think so often a lot of the work that I do with my students is just trying to identify an emotion let alone try to figure our way out of it. But just being able to name it, I think, gives you so much help. And so I love that you shared that because that word became very important to me and I felt compelled to share it with so many students last year. Yeah, I think that being able to name it brings us some power back over a situation in which we're all essentially powerless. You know, it's, it's, and it's global. And I don't know a single person who likes that feeling, being powerless, nobody. So that's been a driver, I think a very potent one. Also, we're not wired for isolation. We are top tier herd animals. We have this ventral vagal system that wires us into ourselves and each other. And even something as simple as touch, which is a very potent driver in all of our lives and a beneficial chemical producer and all, you know, all kinds of other things, we've been deprived of being around each other hearing each other, smelling each other, you know, I mean, very basic human things that we usually have taken for granted, uh, congregating for important events or for a meal. Not being able to do that increases the baseline stress tremendously. And if there's a benefit, I think it's that people have discovered from being locked down how crazy their lives were. Not everybody. You know, there are a lot of people who are anxious to get back to exactly what they had before. But a lot of people have taken a deeper dive into themselves 
and really taking a deeper look at their lives and where they're fulfilled and where they're not, where they have intrinsic meaning in their lives and where they don't, the things that are important to them and that aren't. Sort of doing some reorganizing and taking stock as an opportunity here. Yeah, and that can be a, a deeply unsettling and uncomfortable experience, as well as a beneficial one. Almost everyone that I work with has been going through that on some level and needs support. So many relationships have been stressed to the max by what's going on. Being together 24-7 without relief, often with small children. Yes, yeah. Brianne, so you had some period of time where you were interacting with students remotely and students in person, as I understand it. And so you had kind of an A-B control group a little bit there in terms of observing some of this. And I wonder if the acedia that you two were talking about manifested itself differently in those students who did have at least a periodic outlet of being able to be face-to-face at school versus those who were very much, as Barry was talking about, sort of at home 24-7. You could see the impact in both groups. You kept hoping optimistically that maybe if we had some children in person, that maybe we could curtail some of this impact. But essentially, you felt incomplete, whether you were in the room or on the Zoom. And so you try to make it as collective and collaborative as you could. But ultimately, you're trying to put together a choral performance and put together an ensemble that knows they're missing roughly 15 or 20 members. And every absence from the in-person gathering then prompted questions of, well, what's going on? Should I be concerned for myself? Should I be concerned for the person who said it? So in-person had its own set of fears and worries and a general reluctance because, you know, we had to have everyone spaced out and everyone was masked. And so a lot of times my most advanced groups would struggle to create sound that used to be sizable and confident and they were bold and suddenly everyone was very cautious and that permeated every part of my instructional plan to the point where it was this kind of tiny little sound that reminded me of when I first got them in sixth grade and they weren't sure how to do anything. And so then you try to get them to sing out and they said, I just don't feel comfortable. And then I had a wonderful opportunity to talk to them about how much their sound was decreased simply because of the presence of the mask. I said, have you noticed you're having trouble hearing one another? And immediately they're nodding. And they said, but our ears aren't covered. I said, yeah, but a lot of the sound you would create in this room has now been stopped. And for, you know, a very necessary reason, but still that was a big impact. And the kids at home, I try to turn some of my attention because again, trying to teach simultaneously. And I know many teachers and instructors out there were dealing with similar circumstances of how do I connect with my students who have no other outlet who aren't here in this room. And yet I would, as I was explaining earlier, I felt as if I were neglecting whichever group I gave my attention. And as an educator, you are destroyed by that concept because you want to do the best for every student in your charge and you couldn't. And within my students on Zoom, it started with a lot of cameras on and they were so excited to just have any interaction. And I was grateful for it, but eventually cameras went dark. And then you were given that instruction of you can't require that a student turn their camera on as much as you'd like to have that accountability piece because you had no idea what the reality was for that child at home. And so I started watching my cameras go dark and then I would just beg for any emotional reaction. I said, can you click a reaction button? Can you give me something? Let me know you're there. Sometimes I do puppet shows. I tried anything just to, and this was, you know, middle and high school. We were so desperate to try to connect. And then you'd start realizing that a lot of the times the disappearing faces often were indicative of major mental crash at home. And then I would usually be getting an email within the week about a student who was being sent to a treatment center or possibly hospitalized for a suicide attempt. And these are, you know, 11 and 12 year olds. And so seeing that, it, it, I wish that it had only impacted one group or, or that it hadn't impacted anyone really, but we saw it happening in both cases. You touched on, I think, a little bit about what some of the signs or indicators are of distress. And, and obviously some of these were relatively advanced in folks' distress and need for intervention. I wonder if there are things, behaviors, traits, characteristics to monitor or to kind of look for as signs about folks in your group or that you're working with as an educator or that you're, you know, with as a clinician or in whatever role that folks might need some support or some help. Absolutely. Major things that I would notice and and be on the lookout for, because again, you're dealing with an adolescent age group in which emotions are running high. And so you're thinking, okay, amygdala response, they're going to respond to everything they're feeling. I need to impose my rational abilities as the adult in the situation 
to help navigate whatever I'm seeing. So typically, if a student had a bad day or a couple of bad days, you keep tabs on it, you make that communication effort, whether it was digitally or in person or with the follow-up email, especially if you know a student with previous history of concern, that was often apparent contact for me. But then what I noticed is that over time, if you started seeing things, behaviors that were changing and lasting for a week or two weeks, that was a major indication that there could be something incredibly wrong, signs of depression and anxiety. And again, I would encourage all people who are working with children under the age of 18, make sure you know policies and expectations for that age group. That always you know, requires parent contact and notification, making sure your school systems are aware of it, contacting your counselors, contacting administration. Because when you are starting to see those things, the need for professional intervention is absolutely necessary. And from a legality standpoint, you are obligated to take care of those kids and do your due diligence. So those are things I would watch for. Major mood changes, major behavioral changes, withdrawn behavior, suddenly just shutting down. And you could see it digitally and in person. Interesting. Barry, how about for you? What are your sort of thoughts or observations about warning signs or indicators that folks need some help? Well, because I'm, I'm not working in the same kind of context as Brianne, I'm working more more one-on-one and small groups uh, and different, different age groups, primarily adults. So they're going to show stress differently. I look for more subtle signs often. Well, not that the ones that Brianne sees are not. I, I don't mean that in any way. But like I, I look for skin tone. I, I look for depth of breath or if the person is breathing. I look for presence in the eyes. I look for some sort of how they're connecting thoughts and feelings. If they're even and and if they are feeling. One of the things that I noticed in my own body very early in the lockdown was a certain catch in my inhale, and I realized that there was a. a part of me that was afraid to take a deep breath simply because there was this aerosolized threat that was omnipresent and we knew nothing about it. Being in a market was an existentially scary experience. I would walk by somebody in an aisle and not want to breathe. And I I literally, until I noticed this, I couldn't do anything about it. You know, the body tends to capitulate, to fear. And at the same time, breathing is an incredibly complex and underrated Rx for a lot of things. One way to counter this fear of breathing, which kind of is a fear of of your own life force, to actually breathe deeply on purpose in a situation where I felt safe, like where I was alone, and just let myself, let my body feel the fear of taking in air, and God knows what came with it and noticing that I was still alive. But we're threatened on a very, very basic level, you know, on on a very primal level in this pandemic. Five million people have died worldwide. I mean, I I don't mean to be a buzzkill. There there is a place where we're all connected in this, in our humanity around this, and we all have to breathe. This may sound like absolute nonsense, you know, or something so basic that that it's like, why is he even saying it? But I find it that, that it's often overlooked. When I was thinking about your choir, Brian, and how when you're in fear, when your body is feeling fear, it's really hard to take the kind of breath that you need to make a sound. So just just even leading people in breathing exercises has been part of my protocol for people dropping some of the stress just enough to grow a little bit to feel some pleasure in life. Barry, you know, you alluded to at the earlier in your response about sort of the opacity of adults in comparison to kids. You know, Brienne was talking about a lot of kids wear their emotions on their sleeves in much more apparent ways in some cases. Is the breathing element, the observation of the breathing, one of your kind of key tickets into getting some insight into what's going on behind the scenes with the adult folks that you're working with? A short answer is yes, absolutely. Our breathing, even though it's autonomic, it's affected by and sometimes regulated by our emotions. And being a somatic therapists. You know, I, the first place I go is the body. Alexander Lowen, Dr. Alexander Lowen said, the truth is in the body. I find empirically time after time that that's true. And sometimes I use my body for reference simply because it's the one that's available. <laughs> it's conveniently located for you at most all times. Yes. Yeah, except for when it's not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Brian, how 
you know, you talked a little bit about the difficulties and struggles that you've gone through as an educator in feeling like it's difficult to support these various groups and kind of working through these difficulties too. And I feel like that speaks to a different aspect of mental health in the arts in that as a practitioner and as a teacher and an educator and a leader, how do you tend to your own needs as you're also trying to tend to the needs of others? And and what kind of element of self-care kind of goes into that for you? Absolutely. This is one that was a very important discussion. Many of us within the community who work with the high school students in the acapella world, who work in the choral world, and after all, it's Texas, so we've got to be good. <laughs> Even when things are not good, we're going to be really good, right. and we're going to give our very best effort. So many of us reached out and just prompted our own discussion groups of, okay, how are we going to handle it for the kids. But more importantly, how are we going to take care of ourselves in the process? Because we've, as I said, you know, we're often the reception point for many things that students bring with them to school. We're often their cry out person. And through our music, we're often the place where they can be vulnerable enough to share those things. And that's enormous. And so I thought to myself, okay, borrow from all of these professional developments I've been to, what's going to be useful and helpful for the students? But more importantly, how am I going to stay intact? Because if I'm not modeling it for my groups and my members, how on earth am I going to expect for us to function successfully? So a big piece of how I approached all of it was looking at, okay, every time I meet with a group, knowing I'm carrying in my own set of anxieties and fears and concerns, how can I put myself in a good place and show them how to do the same and then apply it throughout their day when I'm not seeing them? So I would typically start every class, whether it was on Zoom in the room, I would start with you know some calming music that I'd put on and broadcast through my class sessions in the room and online. I would start with just some simple breathing exercises, timed breath, being aware, you know, allowing and inviting students to close their eyes if they felt comfortable. I'd always preface that by explaining, I'm going to watch the door. So you don't have to worry about that because again, all these anxieties were far more pronounced when they came back. So I would often, you know, just set up a wonderfully comfortable space of I'm watching the door. You're welcome to close your eyes if you'd like. You can keep your eyes open. I want you to join me and we're just going to breathe. And we'd time it and we'd exhale. And I'd often just say, allow yourself to be just aware of what you're feeling right now. And in so doing, to practice that and be ready to prepare it for them, I then had to do it myself. And I built it in as part of our day because I told them, I said, we all need this. And this may be your one opportunity today to just breathe and be aware of where you are and how you're doing today. And we also had to have an attendance piece for every student in our school district. So I thought, well, I'm going to make it a check-in. And I gave, I think, 17 different options for how are you today? And I was amazed how seriously so many of them took that question because it was the one opportunity to really say, honestly, how are you today? And it wasn't with the, you know, there was no need to fix it. It was just, I'm checking on you. And I think we all needed that. So I thought the only way to do it was to model it and do it for myself. And last year, I personally signed up and started going to a therapist myself to manage the emotions of everything last year. And I shared that with a lot of kids and said, there are things that are too big for anyone to handle. I said, and I'm here to tell you as an adult that the enormity of everything happening in our world right now is too big for me to understand and too big for me to figure out. So I'm getting help to figure that out. And I encourage you to talk to people in your life. And if you need help to figure this out and be okay, do it. And I think that that was such a helpful thing, or at least I hope it was, because I know we were all struggling in different ways. For sure. Well, we're going to take a moment to put on our masks. We hope you do the same. We're going to take a short break. On the other side, we'll be talking with both Brienne and Barry about things like resilience and how to build regular practices into your rehearsals and group meetings to better support your folks. So stick with us. We'll be right back on the other side. Have you seen what's new at Acapella Masterclass? Learn choreo from Taylor Swift's choreographer. Learn scat singing from literally the guy who wrote the book. Songwriting from a collaborator with Grammy and Emmy winners. Each class is online at your own pace and lets you hear right from the source about how these masters do what they do. Educators can get discounts for using Masterclass in the classroom, and an all-you-can-learn subscription is available, too. Soak up the knowledge at acapellamasterclass.com. And we're back talking about mental health and acapella with Brianne Woodward, who is an educator and voice teacher, and Barry Carl, longtime acapella member and marriage counselor. Here again is your host, Erin. Barry, I wonder, you know, Brianne, before the break, talked about 
the elements of, of mindfulness as well as kind of taking care of herself as she's trying to take care of others. And for someone like you who has such a rich practice of caring for others, I wonder how you do that for yourself and kind of make sure that you're staying healthy too. <clears throat> you're basically asking me how I resource myself as a giver. Right. That's a really important consideration because nobody is a bottomless well. I'm a fairly shallow one myself. So one of the things that I started doing early in the pandemic was going into nature uh, as often as possible. I'm fortunate to live about 12 minutes away from a huge state park in New York. And I'm a motorcycle enthusiast, and it's the perfect social distance machine. And getting myself into a beautiful environment that's all lakes and forests and windy roads is very nourishing for a person like myself. I spent a lot of time reconnecting with music from other parts of my life. Before I was a singer, I was a French horn player, and there's an entire repertoire that I played before I was 20 that is just gorgeous and enjoyable, and, and I went and kind of rolled around in that. But I regularly work in and with music. I, singing is really a great form of self-nurturing. Meditation is a great form of self-nurturing. I make sure that I get touched. I go and get massages. I make sure that I have a small pod of safe people around me that I can share touch with. I mean, I have, you know, this is just a sidebar. I have more clients than I did before COVID. People coming back because of the effect of the isolation. Anyway, that's a, another thing. But uh, doing some doing little uh, projects. My favorite thing that I did in 2020 was uh, record a, a rockapella song with Sean singing the lead and a volunteer chorus of about 40 people. And the caliber of the people that stepped up to help because the entire thing was a fundraiser for uh, frontline medical workers. Bill Hare, who is probably the greatest acapella mixer in the world, just threw his hat in the ring immediately. Georgia Hilton, who is a, among other things, a brilliant video editor, said, and ran the whole thing. And we raised some money, but I think more importantly, it gave us emotional sustenance. Everybody connected with it got something from it. So, yeah. It seems as though a key aspect of all of the things that you're talking about, or many of the things that you're talking about, are that you have identified those things that will nourish you in that way, that you know that about yourself. And I wonder, you know, a, a lot of students, for example, as well as adults, don't necessarily know about themselves enough to know what's going to help them. I wonder, you know, how you get that insight. Okay, well, this... I don't want to wade into controversy, but I'm going to say the P word, okay? <laughs> pleasure. Frankly, we are not a pleasure-positive society. We market it. We market the, he the heck out of it. But we have a lot of proscriptions around pleasure itself. And, and no, no matter what that means to you or how you interpret pleasure or what's pleasurable for you, it almost always comes weighted down with shame of some kind or guilt. So identifying what pleases you, what makes you happy is, is actually a rather, that's a long form job. I think it, it's a lifetime job because obviously different things are going to make you happy at different points in your life. But a lot of people don't have a relationship with pleasure. They don't take time for it. They don't let it land when it comes to them. We have the receptors, most of us, I mean, in a neuronormative world, but we don't embrace it. And as a rule, some individuals do. I was lucky that to grow up around, around some of that. But one of the things that I do is help people identify what's pleasure to them. You know, I think you're feeling pleasure. Am, am I? Well, you're, you're smiling and, and your face is all lit up and you're kind of looking pretty jiggy. Oh, oh yeah, I am. You're, you're probably not having negative thoughts right now. Well, you know, that's really funny. I'm not. So you kind of have to put the pieces together for them. Uh, and oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I feel pretty good. Brianna, how about for you with younger kids, uh, you know, with kids in general? Because it seems like particularly for for students who may lead very programmed lives and structured lives, that a lot of what Barry's saying really resonates with that age group as well. 
Absolutely. I think so many of the things we were seeing with students right now is that a lot of their interaction was digitally based. So then when it was up to them to figure out, well, what am I needing in my life? What's missing right now? Why do I feel or what do I feel? They couldn't answer it because there was no one there to really tell them or guide them. And so a lot of my students, you know, I would send them writing prompts throughout it, during the time when we couldn't be at school at all. I would just often say, how are you doing right now? Or what is what are the things you're missing? Because something that we started seeing that they would be able to speak to was identifying what do you miss the most? And that was helping to show them, okay, then this is the thing that you're needing to take action on in terms of recovering that. And the big thing that was a giveaway for us when we were talking about music video ideas for PFC last year, that's my husband's high school acapella group at MacArthur High School. And they were talking about video ideas and they said, well, maybe we should. And and he came home and he said, you're going to love this. He said, of all, you know, he said, we have the first time we get to submit a video for ICHSAs. This is going to be so great. And I said, what special effects are we going to need? And they said, honestly, we just want to show everybody at their house doing whatever we're all doing. And then we start having a text. And all we want to do is meet up at the school and give each other a hug. And I said, are you kidding? That's all they want? And he said, yeah, that's all they want. He said, they also want to do a Lysol battle. He said, I'm not sure how we're going to do that. He said, but they want to have a Lysol battle so that way they can safely give each other a hug and just have one rehearsal like it used to be. And the video that resulted from it is one of the sweetest, cutest things because every kid is filming life as they knew it. Sometimes they have siblings crawling over them while they're trying to do their little segment to cut away. One's trying to get to school on a tricycle. And these are, you know, 16, 17 year old kids who just want the simple thing of, can I just go be with my friends and make some music? So I think that was a really important piece for us to take away too. They didn't need fancy over the top you know, substitutions. They needed authentic ways to connect and share in whatever way they safely could. And that was the big thing to try to help them identify and speak to it rather than just ignoring it. Because as I mentioned before, a lot of the response was just to shut down and dismiss. And we hope to hopefully find some intervention before it became that. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned sort of earlier about some of the more extreme cases that you have seen where, you know, there were up to and including suicide attempts and, and pieces like that. And I wonder about for folks that aren't licensed therapists or mental health professionals, but are playing one in a classroom in your case, or in a group with where you're just in a collegiate acapella group or a post-collegiate acapella group as adults or, you know, earlier in life. When do you know it's time? What are the indications do you feel like that it's time to pull the ripcord and, and get more expert help? You know, to sort of refer it out to, you know, you mentioned obviously in the case of a suicide attempt where obviously you would, either the parents would reach out to you or you would reach out to them, but both quite immediately. I have to imagine that the line is somewhere before that and that there must be some indicators that deeper interventions may be required. What's what's your sense about that? When it comes to children's safety, I've always been one to probably lean more into taking too many precautions because you just never know what might be a passing comment for one student, maybe their ultimate plea for help. Again, from an ethical perspective, I thought I can't go home knowing that if there was a student in trouble and I just dismissed it as, oh, they're going through a phase. And that's also so rude to the student because, and it's a conversation I have many times over with middle and high school students. You're feeling very big things and you need my help to guide you through very large emotions and be a stable functional result, uh, result a stable functional adult in your life because many of them don't have that so in every interaction i try to maintain that role for them let me be the person that you can rely on and i'm not necessarily going to pretend i have all the answers and i admit that very forthrightly but i make a big deal about understanding for the students and for myself that there are certain things that legally i'm obligated to report if i think there's any possibility of you being in harm's way or someone in your life who could be potentially harmful to you morally legally ethically i have to report that or i could lose my job in addition to never being able to look at myself in the mirror again. Exactly. Decent person. So (laughs) a big part of what I do is, you know, try to evaluate in the moment what is really going on here. Often it's just, let's have a conversation one-on-one, give that student an opportunity to express themselves with privacy and respect. 
and then proceed accordingly. Often, if I see that a child really is upset, I will email home or contact a family member just so they can be aware of it and then offer help. But if there's something where I think there's any potentiality for major issues, that is sometimes a report to Child Protective Services, sometimes a reach out to the school guidance counselor, as well as the administrative staff, in addition to the parent reach out. And again, you have to walk that fine line of making sure that you have permission to contact everyone who's listed for that child too. So there's a lot of legal tightrope walking, but it's much better to err in the side of protecting the kid. I would say that over and over, no matter what. And to do it, it sounds like disclosively with the student in a way that maintains that trust level to the degree that you can while you're doing that disclosure. Right. right. Barry, what advice or suggestions would you have for folks that don't have the, the depth of expertise that you do that maybe around folks that are going through issues, whether they're colleagues in a group or group members or in other settings. When do you know it's time to go beyond sort of interested and helpful group member or colleague or friend to suggesting or directing towards other help? Hmm. There's a range there, and I want to be careful and, and respectful in answering that because people run a range just naturally of empathy. Some people are kind of natural empaths and really good listeners, and some people aren't. I think that the scale that I use, or the metric that I use, is asking a person if they're having suicidal ideations, and step two is if they have a plan. Those are the the basic questions that are the two red flags that are an automatic referral to a qualified psychiatrist. That's my legal obligation, and it's also my moral obligation. Short of that, being a listener is so valuable to people. They need ears more than they need advice, way more. So you might have the best advice and the best intentions in the world. And 95% of the time, and I'm making that number up, (laughs) but nonetheless, 95% of the time, listening to somebody is going to help them more than advising them. And if you're going to give advice, no, I can't even say that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're you're better off not, I I think. Right. If if you're going to give advice, don't, is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. yeah, If you want to help, don't help. Right. But but always listen. Yeah. Do you, so Barry, you, you talk about the importance of listening. I I think that means different things to different people in terms of being able to listen effectively and actively, but in a non-presumptuous way. And I wonder, what does active or good listening mean to you behaviorally? What does that look and sound like? Boy, I I don't know if there's really enough space here to, to spread that one out because it's not actually a simple process for the listener. If I can break it down quickly, God, keeping your body open. We listen with our whole body. We don't just listen with our ears. Try to be present. If you're going to listen, try to give it your attention. Don't be listening and thinking about something else or on to the next chore. Because one of the things that absolutely penetrates another person's energy is presence. It's a gift. It's a gift that you give another person, your presence. So not that you have to maintain eye contact. You might be talking to a person or listening to a person who has difficulty making eye contact. But try to keep your present focused on them. It it can be very healing, especially given the kind of privation that we've all been through. So I, I think from a simple standpoint, without really getting into a whole lot of of the detail of what I think a good listener, the faculties they should possess. Those are two kind of solid guidelines, I think. Brianna, I I wonder, as you have worked with students in both the, the, the private teaching world as well as in the scholastic world, one of the things that is such a helpful characteristic, it seems like, to have, especially these days, is a sense of resilience, of being able to sort of make through, to stay afloat during these kind of challenging times and the challenging times that we all have in our lives throughout our lives from, from time to time. Are you finding ways to help build that in the students that you're spending time with? You know, How do you kind of help grow those skills in folks? So I think one of the best things we can do is give people a way to contribute something positive that they can physically do. So that way you can move past your current state of existence. So at the end of last year, I just was getting tired of watching body postures collapsing digitally and in person. Students who just said, well, what's the point? This year doesn't matter. We all tried to show up in some way. And for what? 
And so I kind of borrowed back from the Judy Garland summer stock adage of, well, let's put on a show. And so I thought in whatever limited way I can, we're going to do something. So I contacted a very wonderful friend, professional choreographer here in San Antonio and asked her, I said, would you come in and teach? I said, I'll film you for Zoom. I'll film you for the kids so we can practice in class. I said, I want to offer choreography. I want students to move wherever they are, however they are, because that's going to be good for us in so many ways. So we put together a series of four songs and we called it. And the whole thing was moving on and moving forward. And it was all very up-tempo, uplifting. And we filmed a music video with anyone who could come up after school. I gave options for kids who usually were at home. I said, if your parents are worried about you being here during the school day, I get that. This will be after hours in the gym, high seat, ventilation, all the things, because you try to take on whatever needs your kids have and give them something to work towards. So that was a wonderful thing that we did to close out last year. Additionally, a big part of what I've done in the private setting, as well as in the class classroom setting is giving students opportunities to write. Often this was neglected because again, we had a lot of shutdown in terms of academic effort and a lot of our academics were suffering simply because students aren't writing to express things are very minimal. So I said, okay. So a lot of times I would offer an opportunity for students to write anonymously, and then I would share out responses. And that was actually really helpful because then you didn't know who was saying what they felt about the piece. And it created really excellent opportunities for discussion, whether that's in a one-on-one setting, whether that's in a larger group setting, it gives you a chance to understand your interpretation, to take on the perspective of someone else in your group, and then start figuring out, oh, we have new frontiers to explore here musically. So giving them a chance to use their voice both written and actually in life were very helpful and are still very helpful because many of my students have expressed that they just felt as if they were dismissed. They said, you know, everyone, you know, they said, I ask all these adults in my life, what am I supposed to do? And they said, well, that's life and you're just going to have to deal with it. And that's just how it is sometimes. And that was such an empty response. So I said, well, then talk to me, sing to me. Let's find some ways to express what you're going through. That's amazing. And we'll have some time for you all to express yourselves while we take a quick break. Please stick with us. And on the other side, we'll be talking about issues like now that people may be getting more back into regular things like competition and gigs, is there a fear that maybe some of this will be lost, some of the work that we've done and the achievements that we've made in our mental health? So stick with us. We'll be back on the other side with Barry and Brienne. You can get vocal perspective anywhere, but what about vocal perspective? Catch the talk show from the female point of view, bringing you the talented women of acapella. Hear these women's journeys and what amazing things they're up to now, both in front of and behind the mic. Vocal Perspective airs Tuesdays at 9 p.m. East, 6 p.m. West, and Sundays at 10.30 p.m. East, 7.30 p.m. West. In Asia, it's on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Tokyo time, and in Europe, it's Saturdays at 6.30 p.m. London time. And we're back with Barry Carl and Brianne Woodward, and we're talking about mental health and acapella. Again, here is your host, Aaron. Thanks so much, Rachel. I wonder if there are thoughts about regular practices or things that different groups can build into rehearsals, group meetings, sort of to add to the structure of what happens when they get together to help support folks in the group with their mental health. Absolutely wonderful ideas for how you can structure rehearsal to help everyone and ideally maybe prevent some major breakdowns from happening, or at least give them a little bit of guidance so that way you don't have major disruptions to the work your group is doing. So at the start of each rehearsal, or again, depending on how you want to set that up, it's wonderful to have everyone practice a moment of mindfulness. Even just one minute to focus your thoughts and your breath is automatically going to set and create an environment where you're going to do better work and have more focus for what the group needs to create together. It sets up a nice, wonderful environment of respectfulness that's mutual, and it's expected from the director through all the members of the group. I would recommend that wholeheartedly. Additionally, just having an opportunity to check in with yourself and where you're at, and maybe designating an opportunity for members of your group to check in with one another. It's brief. It doesn't have to be a lengthy session. No one's obligated to fix one another. But just knowing that we have someone to whom we're accountable and someone who we're looking out for is something that makes us feel useful and makes us feel that we have importance in that group, which is a fantastic thing to build, no matter you know whether we have a pandemic or not. It's so important to facilitate that group dynamic. And so starting a rehearsal with that process and knowing that that's going to be a built-in routine is going to really help a lot of the students who are dealing with some form of anxiety because that anxiety is running constantly in the background of their minds. So allowing students structure 
and expected things that are going to happen is going to, you know, whether you meant to or not, that's going to make things much better for your students who are dealing with anxiety issues coming into that rehearsal space. So I think an opportunity to do that, creating a group chat. If you're able to have a platform that can allow everyone to see the conversation, that's a wonderful way to share some funny moments, to laugh together, to check in with one another. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity to explore. It's also where I get some of the best memes that I read all week. So, <laughs> if nothing are... else, you can have a lot of fun. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I know there are a lot of collegiate groups that, that live on a group chat. That is a, a huge mm-hmm. feature for sure. Yeah. And so, I, again, it's just that way to set up some healthy practice practices for your group membership by modeling that, having conversations that might be needed if there's, you know, oftentimes when there's things going on in our world and major news headlines, no one's talking about it with these students. And so I've often taken it upon myself to bring that up and just kind of say, hey, is there anything we need to take care of before we get going? How are you doing with this? How are we feeling about this? And creating that as a built-in is also going to diffuse potential conflicts later. So that way people feel, yes, I can express my ideas and I can share what I'm bringing into today. And as long as it's structured, it isn't going to be a runaway train either. But I think having that piece built in creates a really wonderful atmosphere that invites everyone for great work and wonderful support throughout the process. Great ideas. Barry, in in working with adults, do you feel like some of the pieces or all the pieces that Brianne talked about with scholastic groups and with students would translate well into post-collegiate groups, pro-groups, collegiate groups, you know, where folks are still trying to address a lot of these issues, but not necessarily in a scholastic environment. I think that would depend on the ecology of the group and, and the size of it and the makeup of it as well. I think that it's an opportunity for people to ask for support from each other. And that's a notably hard thing to, for a lot of people to do as well. So it might be possible within a group, and, and it might not. Uh, I loved all of Brianne's ideas about how to facilitate a more emotionally cohesive group. There's a lot of stuff that I, I do with groups of adults that's really quite similar to that. But the, the place where, where I, th- I think people have the hardest time is, is in being vulnerable enough to ask for support around things. I, I think that, that men, males, are, are, are really socially disadvantaged in that way. We're not only discouraged from it, we're shamed. So that there's a lot of unlearning that needs to go on there just from a, a larger social context, but it's it's going to show up. Maybe less so in music groups. I'd like to think so because it's just a, a more open platform and singing is a more vulnerable act. Hopefully there's more flow there, so you could do it. Do you feel like ways to help set that environmental stage to encourage that kind of asking for help and sharing and and those sorts of characteristics, Barry? Yes, absolutely. I think Brienne hit the nail on the head when she said modeling, because that's really a very, very important thing. If nobody's modeling it, nobody's going to do it. So there are torchbearers, you know, and I'm kind of entering into my eldership here. And that's something that I actually enjoy modeling. Yeah. Yeah. After a couple of years now of, or almost somewhere around there, some uncomfortably close to two years, if not plus or minus, of being forced in some ways to prioritize some mental health crisis management, mental health kind of check-in and those sorts of things that have also had some positive side effects of also raising awareness amongst students and others about mental health issues. As we start to return to a more quote-unquote normal environment with more being together, focusing on singing and performance and, and drive and competition and you know, whatever is sort of the raison d'etre of the group. How do you keep some side focus, at least, or main focus on the wellness of the singers, the wellness of your students or your colleagues in the group? Because it seems like it would be easy to lose that. While it could get buried underneath a lot of the demands and expectations, I think our students are so aware And we're made so aware of what they're going through that it's not, again, it's that whole thing of once you become aware of all of these needs you had, it's really hard to just put them away and pretend that they weren't there. I had a private lesson yesterday with a student who said, I'm just so frustrated. I said, why? What's going on? All the adults think that everything's okay right now, and it's not. And I wish someone would tell me I'm not crazy for thinking that. 
That was from a 13-year-old yesterday afternoon. I thought, okay. So, and and I think you, you see that echoing from, you know, Simone Biles this summer at the Olympics. I don't know that she made that decision other than for her own mental well-being. She didn't make the decision with the anticipation of becoming such a spokesperson for mental health and honoring where you're at and trying to be okay, even when you're on the world stage. Taking care of that mental component, I think our students now are not only aware of it, I think that they're almost expecting that consideration. And so with that, I think that it's going to be part of our rehearsals. I think it's going to be part of our contest piece. Not, maybe not as predominant as it was in the immediacy of coming back this year, but I think that there's an awareness there that they're realizing this is an important piece of my overall wellness and functionality within the group, within my life. So that's definitely something we're seeing. And so I, I'm glad of that because I think we now have that opportunity to say some days, you know, that idea of that toxic positivity that was often thrown at me to get me through the tough of last year. And sometimes I just said, can we just honestly acknowledge where we're at and know that some days are tough and that some days we're not okay, but we are not going to stay there. We're not going to stay in that place. We're going to find ways to move through it and, and figure out what we can learn from it. So I think that's what's coming into full view. Yes, we're going to the competitions and we're having concerts, but there's this wonderful new appreciation for the opportunity to do that. I loved and shared many you know, performances in New York of the Broadway curtain calls and all of these people coming back and the standing ovations, because this is the place where we celebrate our humanity. And every time we perform, it's that chance to genuinely connect with people we know and people we don't know at all. And that's powerful and that is healing and we've missed it so desperately. So having those opportunities is helping a lot of the things that we needed. But I think we're going forward now with an awareness of the importance of the participants that we didn't have before that we are now looking to the person who sings down from us or the person across from us as we're working in class. And we're now seeing that humanity. And so I think the recognition of that is fantastic. And I hope it never goes away because it's changing music for the better and it's making us better in the process too. Yeah. And, and I think as you just alluded to at the end there, as it improves us collectively, it improves the kinds of art and music we can create, it seems, as well. Barry, what about for you, thoughts on how to keep this front of mind as life starts to interfere again? You know, as life starts to ramp back up, how do we make sure that focusing on these issues doesn't become a casualty of that? Focusing on... On our own mental exactly health and the mental health of the people who are in groups with us and, and around us. Doesn't become a casual... It doesn't, doesn't recede into the background? That's a really good question. I think that the gift of our species is adaptation, especially adaptation to hostile environments. It took us, in the overall scheme of things, no time at all to adopt protocols like masks and social distancing and for a while gloves and just everything that we've had to do to change around to survive. And I think we're apex predators because of that, or partly because of that. So it's an admirable thing. However, what we fail to do in our effortless adaptation is calculate the cost. That becomes a lived experience for all of us. And typically, when we launch into an adaptation, we don't figure the cost. It just rolls itself out. Whatever the new normal is, we haven't hit it. We're still deep in change. We're in the middle of a maybe. It's a very ambiguous kind of situation. So I think not to be boring, but to start actively choosing pleasure as an option in your life helps keep an awareness of the preciousness of the things that we're rediscovering or that, that we're recovering that we missed. And they can be very, very simple things. This is not complicated, unless we start talking about something like music, which is both gloriously simple and incredibly complex. And the arts, you know, all of all of the endeavors that are the flowers on the on the, the bush of civilization, you know, like make what what give it a reason to be and pollinate and spread. I hope that we can nurture our own and each other's pleasure and appreciation of the things that we did miss and continue to find juice in them because it's it's really juicy one of the things that i'm noticing is is just how juicy life is you know the thorn wilder play our town i think everybody in high school has to read it the really famous monologue at the very end where, where the girl asks the old man well does anybody ever really get it while they're here do they really appreciate it all and he thinks for a minute and he says yeah, saints and poets, some. But we need to be those people, I think. Or yes, 
we will readapt and we'll do it effortlessly and it will slide into the background. Right. And carry the cost associated with it, as you're talking about. Exactly. And we'll have to relearn it all over. Brian, do you feel like as Barry's talking about that, the, you know, we start to reevaluate the things that bring us pleasure, that bring us joy and that, you know, for ostensibly for people who are in a singing group or singing together, the act of singing and, and making music and creating art and, and collectively working together on a, a goal like that is part of that. But there are also a lot of aspects to it, right? There's the idea of performance or touring or competing or elements that not everyone necessarily finds that joy in. Do you think that groups are going to take it as an opportunity to reevaluate kind of where they're spending their their energies together while singing? I'm seeing it happen already. I had friends who've completely nixed traditional concert repertoire for all of the fall concert series. Some have decided to have concerts outside, not because anyone was telling them to, but because they wanted something different. And so welcoming in kind of this festival vibe and inviting everyone to come and be part of it. So I see a lot of folks are changing their approach to a lot of performance practice in that repertoire has shifted, contest expectations. Some people said, I just don't feel like doing this right now. Can we just focus on something new? And so there's some new territory, some new repertoire. I think people are very much in an exploratory phase, and this has given them permission to not do what we've always done and not do it always just out of tradition's sake, which has been very exciting. I love seeing the new choices that are coming out in terms of style and repertoire. And I personally, I was planning a piece for one of my groups this winter that was going to be done entirely with flashlight choreography, just to change things up, to take our audience into darkness and then play with what light can do. And the song was all about how you find that resilience in the darkness. And how do you find your light again when you've had so many reasons to just be lost? And I thought, okay, let's change that up. And then I thought, well, maybe we reach out and we get new parts of our community involved in the singing because that's restorative. And that helps us connect because, again, I, for all of the ways that we were together and apart, there's a lot of rebuilding that has to happen. And so from a social standpoint, I think that's what a lot of groups are focused on right now is figuring out how do we reassemble the ensemble? How do we repurpose the group? And what is that going to look like? And it doesn't have to look like what we've always held up as the typical template, which I think is refreshing, necessary. And it's nice that the reevaluation isn't just directorial. It is ensemble membership too. We're seeing that among a lot of groups just changing for wonderful reasons. So I think it's good. Well, this conversation has been so illuminating and I am personally going to be hiring Brian and Barry to be my own therapists and talk me down from every ledge. You can t- as well. We're so grateful for the time that Barry Carl, who is a longtime member of Rockapella and marriage counselor and Brianne Woodward, educator and voice teacher, have spent with us this evening. Thank you so much for tuning in and tune back in again next week when we'll be talking about acapella as a platform for activism. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Hey guys, Brian Ziegler from After Hours here, and you're listening to Acaville Radio. 